Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, editor-in-chief of Changelog. On today's show, we're at Microsoft Build once again, talking about Python at Microsoft with Dan Taylor and Steve Dower. We talk about the history of Python at Microsoft, the origination of Iron Python, Python tools for Visual Studio, flying under the radar to add support for Python throughout Microsoft DevTools, fighting from within to support open source, and so much more. So I'm joined by Dan Taylor and Steve Dower. These guys are doing Python at Microsoft. Who knew? I didn't even know there was Python at Microsoft. And it sounds like there's not just Python at Microsoft. There's like a long legacy of this. Dan, Steve, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank Happy to be here. Let's go back to the beginning a little bit. You guys have been at Microsoft for a little while. Tell us about Python and its roots in this in this company. Wow. So so yeah, Python at Microsoft has, has such an interesting history. Uh, so I've been there for about six years, coming up on six years now, uh, and it was going before my time. Uh, I don't remember the details. I've heard like the stories and the rumors. There was some app part of like Windows Server. 2003 or something that shipped and needed Python. So we briefly shipped Python in Windows uh, for some database app. I, I don't even remember what it was now at this point. Uh, that went away at some point. Someone upgraded and, and went to a different language. Uh, we briefly flirted with the idea of, you know, let's implement Python on top of the CLR. Uh, and that became Iron Python along with Iron Ruby. Uh, which ultimately became the dynamic features of C Sharp okay. came out of that. So it wasn't a complete bust of a project. Yeah, uh, and and I heard some of the um, uh, some of the features in the debugging uh, area also came out of that. We reused some of the the APIs uh, for yeah. for the PyDev debugger and and things like that. Uh, certainly, yeah. There's there's a lot that came out of that project. After that was kind of wrapped up on the Microsoft side and and pushed out and and taken over by the community. By the way, like there's people still. Pushing Iron Python along, really? uh, it's still still making releases. They're they're getting their Python three support together. Uh, after that was when we kind of turned around and said, "Hey, you know, this thing that we do better than anyone else right now is tooling." And like Visual Studio is far and away one of the best editors on the planet. This is like 2008, uh, 2009, 2010 kind of era. 
uh, let's invest in Python support there. And so there was this tiny little team, totally under the radar, uh, building Python support for Visual Studio and, and shipping an extension, uh, which was known as Python Tools for Visual Studio. And from there, uh, Dan can probably pick up on, on how we've grown since then. Yeah, so um, I've also been at Microsoft for uh, going on seven years now. And, and most of the time, I've worked on Visual Studio in various areas. And only in the past year did I join the Python team. But uh, uh, the reason I came over is because Python is growing so quickly at Microsoft. And we have, you know, there's a lot of momentum behind it. And so uh, now we've got these great tools in Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code. Uh, for Python developers, we have this very fully featured, uh, uh, rich set of tools, and um, you know we really, uh, as a team, we're all bound together by this mission to make Python developers more productive, uh, make the Python language itself more successful, uh, and you know contribute back to the community. Going back to this idea of a small team flying under the radar, getting Python into the system, so to speak, this is something that we exp we hear a lot about, and we see with open source tooling or languages or whatever it is, where rarely is it a, a top-down decree we're going to do Python. It's usually a grassroots effort. Maybe somebody did something, didn't ask permission, but they were going to ask forgiveness later. Um, is that something that happens frequently at Microsoft? Is this like a rare occasion? What? How does it usually work when new open source comes in? I know it's different now than it used to be. Oh yeah, it's a totally different place than it used to be. I mean, easier to ask forgiveness than permission is one of the core Python design principles. So it's you know no big surprise that we went that way and you know started just releasing this product and and telling people that yeah you can do Python uh, before your upper management even heard about it. But yeah, is it? It's not really that common. Uh, and even now, I don't think it's that common because the decree has come down. Uh, and, and it took a long time to get there. Uh, certainly in the early days, we had fights with lawyers and many, many discussions and you know, working lunches with lawyers to try and teach them about this open source thing that was going on, uh, encouraging them, hey, go read this Apache license, go read this MIT license, hmm. see what you think about them, see how, figure out how, we, how Microsoft can release code under these instead of going off and inventing our own brand new licenses, which some people may remember we also did for a period. Oh, really? Well, I think it's, you know, also, as Steve said, a lot of it's about education and helping people yeah. uh, understand. You know, I think a lot of people were scared of open source. A lot of companies, not just Microsoft, as it started to gain in popularity. And, uh, you know, as Steve says, it's helping people understand why is this, you know, you know uh, why is this a good thing? Why is this beneficial? And as they learn more, you know, the, they've become... Uh, more supportive and, and helpful towards what, we, what we've been doing. And we're at this awesome point now where we have like automatic systems for releasing open source projects, uh, all of the kind of governance and, and tracking of licenses and dependencies is all kind of automated throughout the company. Uh, it's easy, like we can self-provision GitHub repositories these days uh, with MIT licensed code for, you know, provided we're meeting the, the guidelines that are set around that. And there's, there's still some restrictions, and, you know, but employees get to make that decision. We aren't running everything through some central location that gets to approve or disprove anything. It's a totally different company, it feels like, in so many ways than it was back when I started. Uh, yeah. And certainly people that have been around longer have even, uh, they're even more impressed at how different it is. There's a lot of systems set up to support and help open source projects uh, flourish at the company, right? There's yeah. systems if you want to create a new open source project, how to do that, and um, they're really there to support, you know, all the teams. Very cool. Let's let's uh, talk about Python itself and exactly what Microsoft is doing with Python for Python and 
who's using Python and what you know aspects you guys see your customers. Yep. So let's let's go ahead and talk about that. So um, Python's been growing uh, very rapidly over the past few years, and um, you know if you read the Stack Overflow blogs and surveys, it's the fastest growing mainstream language. So it's uh, I think as of this year, is 38 you know percent of respondents indicated they're using uh, the Python language, uh, and that's been growing you know. Uh, rapidly over the past few years. So it's got a lot of people, it's still growing fast. Um, there's, I like to talk about three different main types of apps or developers uh, that are using Python. Um, one of them is the data science and machine learning that's, right. that's driven a ton of growth with Python recently. And uh, the other one is web development. Um, a, lot of, a lot of large companies, a lot of big websites are built on top of Python. Um, and that continues to be a very popular, very productive language, right? And then the other one is just automation, scripting, tests, you know, uh, IT operations, system management. Python's a very productive language to work with, so a lot of people find when they need to automate some of their workflow uh, that Python uh, is, the, is the right tool for them. Um, I also mentioned that uh, with people learning the program these days, Python is, is actually one of the best places to start if you wanted to learn to program. Mm. And so a lot of people in school, a lot of stu students come out of school knowing Python, a lot of people who are you know, in the professional career and want to learn a new programming language are coming to Python, right? So at Microsoft, we really want to enable all of that, right? So we have our tools in Visual Studio Code for, you know, especially if you're doing some lightweight scripting, uh, it's a great place to start, you know, and then we've got tools in Visual Studio, which for the large, more, say, hardcore um, uses of Visual Studio, especially if you're already a Visual Studio developer using C++, for example, or C Sharp, and you want to mix Python in with that, um, together in the same project. Visual Studio is a great place for that because we can do you know, uh, cross-language uh, debugging and other features like that. Mm. And then we're also working to enable people in the cloud who are, you know, for example, doing machine learning uh, projects to be able to run their Python code in the cloud, to do batch training, to be able to do you know, all that stuff. Yeah, thinking about education a little bit, what, what do you think it is about the language itself that lends itself well to first timers and even children learning it. I know a lot of the, the boot camp uh, uh, schools and a lot of like the getting kids into code will be focused on JavaScript because of its ubiquity or maybe Ruby because you know a lot of the syntax melts away and it can look kind of like English. But Python, like you said, is very popular for that as well. What do you think it is about Python that makes it good at teaching, good for I teaching? I, I always like to position Python as, as having like this very, very shallow learning curve uh, that then quickly jumps up to a point where you can do all kinds of magic, amazing stuff. Uh, and it's I, like I compare it to C++ in that respect as well. When you get into like C++ template and metaprogramming and stuff, you can do absolute magic. Yeah. And it's amazing. And I love it. Um, but C++ still has like that sharp learning curve to right. be able to use any of that because there's like angle brackets everywhere. Uh, Python doesn't have that. You can write really simple English-looking code uh, like that reads nicely in Python. I've certainly seen like papers that have taken Python code and renamed it pseudocode and not actually changed any of it at all because it reads just like pseudocode uh, that most people would want to use. But as a library developer or as a framework developer, you can make objects that and, and classes that do really amazing things but look very natural and read very natural. Mm. And it's it's not quite the same as uh, like Ruby gets used a lot for DSLs uh, and and it's amazing for that. 
it doesn't, you never actually change the semantics of Python. So you have this consistent language that always behaves the same. It's like equality is equality, uh, less than is less than. It's like you, it doesn't do weird things. Like the operator overriding and stuff. Yeah, which you can totally do. It's just not in the, in the community doesn't do it. Exactly. Right. So there's a there's a, a a saying in the community about things being Pythonic, right? The right. community always stri strives for things that, you know, look Pythonic. It's got a very good set of idioms and, and ways that people use it, and it feels very natural. Um, there's this joke that Python is pseudocode that runs. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And people, I don't personally myself, I don't know what Pythonic means, but I know it when I see it, <laughs> and everyone else seems to you know have that same impression there. I, it does just mean that you know it when you see it. Probably shouldn't share this in case people you know, apply for jobs with our team, but one of the interview questions I like to use uh, with people who will be Python developers yeah, is, a scratch pad. Here's, here's a sample of code. Um, you know, tell me what's not Pythonic about it. Uh, and it's, it's amazing to see the range of responses. And, and some people who haven't like, experienced a lot of good Python code look at it and go, it looks mostly fine. Uh, and some people look at it and go, I can't take this away. I'm about to vomit. Uh, because it's such a like it's such an artistic thing huh. that that when you learn it and you feel it, then the code feels right and it looks right and it smells right. Um, but you only learn it through experience and by seeing good code. And so, you know, we make a big effort to make sure that all the code coming out of Microsoft is Pythonic in a way because we know that people will see our code. Yeah. And go, Microsoft did it. You know, they they have good people there. It must be good code. And so. You know, we try and make sure that it is actually good code. Isn't there documentation around, I'm thinking of like, is it PEP8 or there's like specific documents that say this is the Python way? PEP8 uh, strictly describes if you're checking in changes to Python itself. Uh, it often gets like picked up and, and you know, this Python developers say it must be done this way, which that's true if you're working on Python itself. Right. You don't have to use those guidelines to be Pythonic. Uh, and in particular, like, the, the 79 character line limit has is totally relaxed for, for everyone else. Uh, but if you're like, working on Python proper, that's what it is. If you're working to. on Python proper, then we still, there are people who work on it using like 80 character wide screens. And if you extend too far beyond that, then they're going to have a harder time reading the code. So we still have that restriction on the project itself. Uh, but yeah, PEP8 is a generally good set of guidelines for things that are going to look right. Uh, but it's not, it's not like Go has their really strict formatting that you know you must get the formatting right, and other languages have like really kind of well-defined defaults for what looks good. Yeah, Pythonic is about so much more than you can describe. Like it's not just you know you put a space before this and a space after this. It really is, you know, don't a use style. a class there when a function will do. Okay, and it's like it goes so much deeper. It goes deeper. Well, I was gonna ask you mentioned Go, and they have a tool. I like go FMT or go Fumt. I hate when they say that. It's like, just call it format or whatever. That will actually reformat your code. So you can write it however you like, and then they'll put it in the format. Unfortunately, it uses tabs, so I, I can't, uh, the dude cannot abide. But that's just one man's opinion. Uh, Elixir is adopting a similar thing. There's a tool, I think, in Elixir 1.6, which adds a formatter. Um, is there anything similar in Python? Could you even have that? Or is that like against the grain in the Python community? You, you can. Um, and there's actually a talk that's come out recently that's suddenly shot up in popularity. It's called Black. Uh, it's actually written by one of the core developers uh, who's, I believe, has just written it for himself and his own team at work. But that is a 
uh, very strongly opinionated formatter that has basically no configuration. And oh. the idea is that you run it on the code and it will make your code at least consistent uh, so that so that everyone's code looks the same going in. So it's the same kind of theory as, as GoFirmed. Yeah. We uh, actually have integration with uh, Black coming up in the uh, upcoming release of the Python extension for VS Code. Okay. And uh, the developer of that Black extension actually contributed a lot of the integration. Would that be something you guys would consider adopting internally at Microsoft or does it go against Microsoft culture or... Because I mean, to me, the advantage of a tool like that is if everybody adopts it, right? Like the fact that in Go, pretty much you can expect people to have that format, that makes it very useful, even if you don't like the style very much, because everywhere you go, it's the exact same code style. And so tools like Black, while interesting in the small, really their value shines if the entire Python community I realize that's like a huge, you know, that's a huge statement. But like maybe the majority mm -hmm. uh, would actually get involved in, and say, okay, let's use black style. Well, certainly there's, it's been, as Steve said, uh, it's been this huge uh, rise in popularity for that, that yeah. black tool. Um, I don't think we prescribe in particular what developers at Microsoft that use Python use. I think, um, I think people, the nice thing about black is a team is fully empowered to say, hey, we want all our code to look like this. We're going to choose black. And, uh, you know, with our tools, we say, Go ahead. You know you can choose to use that, and we'll make it easy for you to integrate that into your your coding experience. Yeah, and and the reality is there's uh, there's so many different like teams are doing so many different things that it's really hard to enforce any kind of style. For so just as like a kind of an extreme example, we have teams that are building and releasing samples uh, and publishing them on the documentation site, and we'd really like those to be formatted nicely. We've also got a huge number of data scientists who are writing Python code that's going to be run once and never seen again. Yeah, scrap it together. And, and if, you know, if anyone comes out and says, you must always run your code through black, and that becomes like some edict from above, uh, now the data scientists are going, how do we do that? And yeah. it doesn't even really matter. It doesn't matter. So, yeah, so, so we, have, we have tools like uh, Pylint, for example, is another popular tool for um, at least detecting. There's a lot of style uh, errors and, and uh, warnings in, in Pylint. And uh, so one of the big things that, you know, we, we let you customize exactly which set of rules your team is going to use. And uh, I think if you turn Pylint on, it strictly follows that PEP8 sort of syntax. Okay. But a lot of people will say, well, we like this rule, we don't like you that rule. You can figure it, yeah. Yeah, and, and so teams will use that. Well, and cool. we'll say we don't like a lot of the rules too and recommend, to, like, we have, we have a file that we suggest to teams to say, you know, if you follow these, then it will be, you know, acceptably good. Uh, there might be more rules that you want to turn on, but these are the bare minimum. Stop, please stop using camel case as a basic example. <laughs> so I, I love camel case, but when I joined the team, the Brett Cannon, who's our uh, dev lead for VS Code, he, he's slowly, and Steve as well, have slowly uh, started to beat the camel case out of me. We're winning him over. <laughs> well, so many libraries use snake case in it. Yeah. You know, it starts to look weird if you're not, but yeah. This episode is brought to you by our friends at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a cloud computing platform built with simplicity at the forefront. So managing your infrastructure is so easy. Your business will thank you. Try it today. do.co slash changelog, effortless administration tools, robust compute, storage, and networking services. It's an all-in-one cloud. Flat pricing across all global data center regions. It's secure. It's reliable. 24 hours 
a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year of world-class technical support and 99.99 uptime SLA for all services. Once again, head to do.co slash changelog. And also by our friends at OzCon. We'll be there, by the way. So if you're going to OzCon, make sure you say hi. OzCon is where it's at when it comes to open source. 2018 features frameworks like TensorFlow, MXNet, blockchain projects like Hyperledger, Bitcoin, and Ethereum, as well as infrastructure disruptors like Kubernetes, Prometheus, and Itzio. If you plan to be there, you will get an insider look at open source and the future of where things are heading. To save 20% on gold, silver, or bronze passes, use the code CHANGELOG, head to OzCon.com to learn more and register. It's interesting how our tastes change over time where I was very can or excuse me I was very snake case for a very long time and now and I used to just I mean I like despise camel case you know I was like that far yeah. on the side and now I'm like eh, camel case not so bad like I look at it I'm like looks all right and it's just like that's why I feel like top-down style guides or like forced styles just feel so constraining when like I can't even internally keep my style, my internal Jared Santos style guide over the course of five years because my taste change. It's just an interesting phenomenon. Anyway, Steve, uh, you've you've been a contributor to Python itself. So you mentioned, you know, Pepe, you, you must be following that uh, at least when you do your work on Python. Is it Python core or tell us your involvement yeah, with the project? Yeah, so, so I, uh, along with four other engineers that we have working at Microsoft, um, one of the, the volunteers uh, although I guess I'm, I'm partly paid by Microsoft in order to do this, uh, who work on the CPython project itself. So that's the core interpreter, all of the core libraries, everything you get in the standard library uh, is, we have a team of, uh, I think on paper we're, we're like 80 or more people and at any one time there's probably 20 to 30 active, uh, active developers who are contributing in some way to Python. Um, but this is entirely CPython, like outside of Microsoft. Uh, it's a yeah. volunteer gig. So it's myself, Brett Cannon, um, Barry Warsaw, Eric Snow, and Dino Veland are all paid employees at Microsoft, and we have our jobs to do there. But we also get time to volunteer on, on this project as well, and we're supported in doing that for, for a variety of, of different things. But overall, it's, you know, it's such an important project yeah. that to, to leave it in the hands of like either volunteer donations, there's a donation drive going on now for the Python Software Foundation to keep that running. Uh, I mean, Python is too important to leave in the hands of donations like that. So yeah. having Microsoft say, yes, we'll employ people who are working on this and keep them working on it is a great thing to, to see. Well, it's actually exciting because it's also uh, one of the few languages that is kind of purely driven out of community roots, right? It, um, most of the other languages were created by a company, and I think Python grew out of the community more or less and is very popular these, these days. Absolutely. How is that managed on a practical sense? Uh, we know some companies allow open source Fridays or there's like 20% time, or how does the actual, you know, where do you draw the lines between Steve, the Python, you know, the, the do-gooder Python community member working on Python and Steve, the Microsoft employee working on Python and 
how does that all play out in practice? I, I have strongly considered getting multiple like baseball caps, one with the Microsoft logo on <laughs> and like, one with the Python logo right on. Now? Because I, I have so many conversations with people where I need to be explicit about which hat am I wearing right, right now. Yeah. That's a hard problem, um, and, right? And yeah, and and in particular for me, so my kind of main role with the C Python team is uh, maintaining a lot of the Windows support, and so I I do a lot of the builds. Uh, I work with a couple of other guys who are focused on that as well uh, to keep Python running well on Windows. Which means I will talk to other teams at Microsoft about, you know, the C Python installer is doing something weird. And I mentioned installer, and they look at me and go, the Visual Studio installer? I go, no, 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 the CPython is a different hat. Let me change hat right. for this. So I don't actually have that hard a line between my contributions. It really is as needed for me. Other people on, like, other people do. Uh, Brett, for example, and I think he's talked about this publicly, so I won't get in trouble, has, like, a very clear, th this is the time that I spend each week on CPython work. And I think if it's you, every Friday. Is it every Friday? Yeah, yeah every and, Friday. and if you email me Which about... That's a very clear line, right? Yeah, and if you email me about Microsoft work on that day, you're not going to get a response on that day because I'm not doing that work. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, it's it's very individually managed. It comes down to how your manager feels about it um, and what value is, is coming back out of that for either the community as a whole or right. Microsoft and how that's valued. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really breathing over your shoulder at Microsoft anyways, you know, and, and watching what you do every day. But yeah, with Brett, I've definitely tried to meet with him on Friday and he goes, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not talking. Yeah. I'm, doing, I'm doing my Python work on Friday. Yeah, that's, slippery slope. That's pretty cool. So we've seen, you know, we track a lot of the sustainable side of open source. And, you know, like you said, like Python's way too important to be just donations based, especially when you, when you see the donations coming in, you're thinking how many corporations are, you know, doing very well because of this completely free to them uh, uh, programming language. We've seen some companies pick up and actually uh, hire or pay full-time salary people whose entire purpose is to work on a specific open source project. Is there anybody doing that inside of Microsoft? Is that a, a conversation that's being had like, wow, I mean, maybe it does make, in cases where it makes sense. Hypothetically, Steve, if it made sense for you, to just like pour all your time into CPython, would that be a conversation that would be uh, had in the side of Microsoft or not? I th yeah, that would certainly be a conversation to have uh, at various points in time. It may be more or less feasible. So certainly, when I started contributing, that that was never going to happen. Um, at this point, who knows? Like the more that Microsoft comes to depend on Python, the easier it is to say this. Like this is important to us. We, we should have someone on it full time who's like not even doing Microsoft work anymore because indirectly this is. Uh, we don't currently have any of those. We, I, I don't know that that's a policy to do it or not do it. Right now, you know, as I mentioned, our team is growing quickly, right? And so I think you know, we do want to get to that critical mass where we can have people who are you know, dedicated to you know, contributing directly to as their full-time gig. Um, part of that is we need to have a, a large enough team that we can sus sustain that while keeping the team, you know, uh, moving Productive forward. And, and, yeah. and, you know, we want to make sure that we're able to deliver, you know, the tools to Python developers, right? And keep those sustainably growing. Um, and then meanwhile, giving back to the community. But cool. absolutely, it would be something that uh, we would love to do. And, and ultimately, you know, when you have, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of users we have for our tools, there's enough feature requests to keep us busy until the end of time. Uh, and so saying we're going to do less features for these things that we own 
and work on this thing that, yeah. that a lot of people own. That's a non-starter, is, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not. It's not so much a non-starter, but you it's just a hard have balance, to, right? Yeah, it's a tough balance, and it's it can be hard to to you know explain to people why we think this is more important than the feature that you're asking for from Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code. Because the editor is kind of the the first the thing that people directly interact with when they're you know writing Python. And as I mentioned, it's about being helping them be as productive as possible, right? So right. the editor is kind of like that top line thing where if we can help them get their code written, give them the right IntelliSense, give them the right warnings, um, you know that that is has a has a direct kind of top of the funnel impact to, right. to people. So let's look to the future a little bit, uh, Dan. Maybe you can tell us about the future of Python at Microsoft and with regard to the tooling, and Steve, maybe the future of the language, where it's headed, and the community. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, so we've got kind of two, three main, well, four main products, right? We've got... Um, two, three, four. Yeah, there's a lot. With five? Well, there's a lot of different teams <laughs> that, uh, there's probably, I could dig a fifth there one out there. Is. I'm sure yeah, so we actually, we actually do work, consult with a lot of teams across Microsoft are doing stuff in Python, so um, there's many more than four or five. It's just really how I choose to bucket them in my head in okay. terms of products. But um, we've got our Python extension for Visual Studio Code. Uh, we've got our Python workload in Visual Studio. Those are you know similar. Um, with, with those, what we're actually doing right now, um, the Visual Studio Code extension originally started as uh, a community-developed uh, extension. It was created by uh, developer Don Giamani out in the community, and we actually hired him and brought him on to the team at Microsoft and republished the extension as Microsoft. So, okay. um, you know, that that's came from the community, and now we're giving back to the community, you know, making the team around that bigger. But right. the big thing we're doing with Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code, so we're actually consolidating a lot of the, uh, the, the core IntelliSense and debugging uh, engines that are, that are powering the two products. Um, we want to make IntelliSense much richer, much more feature complete, much faster, uh, make sure you get all those warnings and errors as you type. And so that's been our big priority right now in the sort of immediate term you know, for those two products. Um, there's some other things that people want uh, once we get sort of through that stuff. A lot of people have been asking for remote development. Let me target uh, Python in a, a Docker container yeah. you know, running in the cloud so I can you know, access the petabytes of data I have without having to pull it all down to my laptop. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that's the sort of very you know, next on the horizon for us is to look at stuff like that. Um, and actually, if you look at our GitHub page for VS Code, our Python extension for VS Code, um, that that's the top upvoted thing with over 200 sort of upvotes, and so we have people screaming for that kind of stuff. Cool. Um, you know, once we get past that, and we also got um, our Azure Notebooks, hosted Jupyter Notebooks. Um, we right now that's a free offering where uh, you know you can go and, and run your Jupyter Notebooks in the cloud without having to download and install that stuff. Where do um, I go for that, Dan? That's on <laughs> notebooks.azure.com. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. <laughs> We, uh, I'm supposed to team up for those. Yeah. I wasn't doing my job over here. <laughs> and so uh, right now that's a free offering, but you know a lot of people, of course, uh, want to be able to put more powerful machines behind that, um, be able to do more, you know, more powerful things. So we're looking at you know, how do we enable to do more workloads in Azure. And the fourth product was just Azure itself. So we want to help people um, get their code running in you know, uh, Azure Functions, uh, Python on Linux, um, a lot of the machine learning workloads and stuff like that. So those are kind of the key areas that you know, we're really trying to, to move forward. Very good. And Steve. if I can bring that up to six products, like you asked for. <laughs> I don't know, was I asked That's for them or did I just yeah. enumerate them? Go ahead. See, SQL Server uh, embedded Python recently. So like the most, uh, I think 2016 and 2017 releases of SQL Server 
come with an install of Anaconda in them. Huh. You can write stored procedures in Python really? and and run those queries, and they'll all run on the server. And you have access to NumPy, Pandas, cool. Scikit-Learn uh, on the same server as where your data actually is. So if you do want to do a lot of that pre-processing and it's in a SQL database, then that option's already there. And that, that was really exciting. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. The actual really cool thing about that is that they actually JIT compile the Python code down to the SQL engine, right? So it, you, know, you can actually get really so good like, performance out of yeah, that by running inside of SQL, SQL Server. And you can kind of copy and paste code from your local uh, Python project and move it over to the, the SQL database side. Interesting. Yeah, and, and the other one that I'm really excited about is Visual Studio Team Services right now, which is, they, they took you know, a bit of time to convince them, but they've now gone, hey, Python is really, really cool, isn't it? Why aren't people you know, building and you know, testing their Python apps on, on you know, our continuous integration stuff? Uh, and we got in touch and basically said, here's why. And they said, OK, we'll fix it. And they fixed it. So now you can spin up build definitions on uh, Visual Studio Team Services, uh, Windows, Mac, Linux, whatever version of Python you want, uh, be building wheels, running tests with PyTest, whatever you want to do. Uh, and it's, it integrates with GitHub. Uh, it, it has its own set of private repositories if you want to use those. Uh, there are more and more exciting things coming for that, that that I can't talk about yet, but I am really excited about VSTS. So I bucketed all those together in one product in my head was Azure. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you go from four to six is you unpack that bundle. Yeah, right? yeah. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of good support for Python and Azure. And as Steve mentions, there's a lot more coming. You know, yeah. teams are increasingly coming to us rather than us having to go to them. Yeah. So you guys are off to PyCon here. Actually, you're gonna run out of here and pack I, your bag. I am going straight home after this and packing and flying out at like Oh God, 30 tomorrow morning. So real quickly, tell me what's going on uh, in the Python community, Python language. What's, what's fresh there? Uh, so Python 3.7 is basically just completely locked down. Uh, we've got the, the fourth beta is out. We're going to have a release candidate soon. And then the final release of that will be out within two months, I think, thereabouts. Um, I don't have the schedule in front of me. That has got... I don't know that it's it's like the most dramatic and exciting release we've ever had, but it's a, it's looking really solid. There's certainly a lot of improvements um, in initialization, which you know a few people are interested in, uh, but it's it's really significant there. Uh, data classes is one of the big ones. So so when you're writing, if you just want like a simple class to hold a couple of values, it's just like a few fields. Yeah. You find yourself writing, you know, a def init and default values and getters, setters, you know, a hash function, comparison functions. We've now got um, a type in there, uh, well, a module in there that you can basically inherit from, and specify just the value, just the names in the class. And you don't have to write any code and you'll end up with like a full, fully defined class that may have default values for those. It'll do comparisons, it'll yeah. do hashing and just generate all of that boilerplate code for you. That's cool, for sure. Uh, so that's coming in, in 3.7 shortly. Uh, we're already discussing stuff for 3.8. Um, there, there's been a lot of robust discussion on the mailing lists recently. A uh, lot of exciting potential coming. I, I have no idea what's what's in and what's out at this point. It's <laughs> it's so early in the cycle that people are throwing ideas around and we're discussing them and 
some of them have kind of gone to votes and, and ultimately the um, Guido Van Rossum, the, our benevolent dictator for life, BDFL, is going to decide on those and say, I think this is good for Python or I don't think this is good. It's just exciting to see what, what he likes the sound of and that'll be what's going towards 3.8 in about 18 months. Very cool. Well, Dan, Steve, thanks so much for sitting down with us and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, thank you for tuning into this episode of The Change Log. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor. Go on Twitter, go on Overcast, go wherever you're listening to this, wherever you share things with your friends, and share it with a friend. Favorite it, like it, tweet it, whatever. Share with a friend. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, Rollbar, DigitalOcean, and also O'Reilly with their OzCon conference. We'll be there, by the way, so if you're going, make sure you say hi. Use our code CHANGELOG to save 20%. And of course, Fastly provides our bandwidth. We love Fastly. Head to Fastly.com. And we catch our errors before our users do because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. This show is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. Editing is by Tim Smith. Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want news and podcasts just like this, head to changelog.com. And thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.